Hello and welcome to Dialogues in Dermatology. I'm Dr. Lauren Council, your Editor-in-Chief. We have another exciting podcast for you today. We hope that you enjoy. Welcome to Dialogues in Dermatology. This is Terry Cronin and I'm here speaking with Dr. Neil Batia, who is in practice in San Diego, and Dr. Beth Santamire Rosenberger, who is in practice in Fairmont, West Virginia. We're going to be talking about solo private practice in dermatology. And I always like to have these conversations and talk about the good, the bad, and the ugly. I'm so glad to have you guys here. Thank you. So I want to ask Beth, first of all, tell us how long you've been in practice and what made you uh, go into solo private practice. So I've been in solo private practice for almost 15 years now. It's hard to believe that. I am sort of a control freak and I sort of like to do things my own way. And one of the benefits we had in residency is we, during, I was at Washington Hospital Center, which is now part of Georgetown, but we went around to different offices and spent a significant amount of time rotating other offices. And when I did that, it really became clear to me that solar private practice was what appealed to me the most. Neil, what appealed to you about going into solo private practice? I was at solo practice from about 2003 to 2011 when I was uh, back in Milwaukee. And back then, the demand for dermatology was very high. My my friends who I trained with in internal medicine who knew for a long time, they were calling me saying, you know, we need someone to refer to. And everything was good for the first couple of years. And then consolidation just destroyed my market. And I started losing my referral base. And Beth and I kind of have the the country mouse, city mouse comparison, if you will, because I was right in downtown Milwaukee, and obviously the Medicaid population was a little higher, not that it isn't in in everywhere, but in my density, as well as my reliance on a referral base from different systems. And once those systems started to get bought by bigger hospitals and bigger healthcare systems, they had their own dermatologists who were in their network. I was then left out in the cold. And eventually, I had to sell my practice to a multi-specialty group. This was before private equity and uh, academic medicine started to become a little bit more of the buyers of medicine. And so I merged my practice in with a bunch of other doctors rather than having to sell it outright, which was good. And so I still got to maintain some control and still act like a solo dermatologist within that group. And that lasted until that group ended up folding and uh, merging into the hospital. And then I said, okay, that's it, I'm done. And that's when I- And you retired? Out. No, I would have loved to have <laughs> retired. I think, I think the specialty probably would have been better off had I retired. <laughs> but that being said, I decided actually, I missed teaching and I missed doing the um, research, which I had been doing quite a bit as a volunteer. So I, when I moved out to California, I, I wanted to get my parents out of the cold, uh, but even more, I wanted to get back into teaching and research. and. Today, I'm part of a, a research trial organization where I'm running the research operations and still seeing regular patients. So it's a bit like solo practice, but without some of the independence, but also without some of the sleepless nights. Well, Neil, thank you. I think you jumped right into kind of the bad and the ugly of the whole discussion pretty quick and, and how you were able to transition to a different practice model. One of the things that we really want to hit on is the good parts of being in, in solo practice. Before I go back to Beth to tell us about the joys, I just wanted to ask you, obviously it's increasingly difficult, but do you think a private practitioner, solo private practice can succeed in an urban area? I think it's still possible. And as we're doing this in the middle of the 
coronavirus pandemic and watching the perils of solo practice and running business without revenue or without steady revenue, I think we'll learn some lessons coming out of this about the need for dermatology for one as a specialty. For two, I think you know the outpatient nature of dermatology still allows us to perform as solo practitioners outside the bubble of a system. Yeah, I mean, we all know a hospital system or healthcare system can really weigh us down when dermatologists are pretty mobile and we adapt on the fly and we adapt to our patients and, and our patients' needs in the market. And a, an urban practice you know, doesn't always have to be cosmetic or surgical-based. It can have a nice blend and you can still be a volunteer teacher if there's a medical school in town. I think the take-home, though, is going to be kind of the lesson that I went through is, are you going to be a victim of consolidation and be on the outside looking in? Or even more so, are you going to stay viable and keep the doors open when the expenses may be higher than somewhere a little less dense in population? Right. Well, let's go back to Beth and ask her. Beth, obviously, there's some joys. You mentioned being a control freak and being in charge of your own destiny, so to speak. But what are the joys some of our younger dermatologists would get from being in solo private practice? So for me, I actually really love it. People ask me about consolidation and getting taken over by some of the bigger hospital systems, which is happening here as well. Now I say I'm going to hold on as long as I can hold on. <laughs> um, I love coming to work. I actually love the business side of medicine. To be honest, I feel like at 15 years out, it doesn't take a lot of my brain cells to figure out that something's a basal cell. But it takes a lot more of my brain cells and it's a lot more challenging to figure out how to report for MIPS or just <laughs> during this week, how to apply for a PPP loan or whatever business thing changes. Dermatology, a lot is staying the same. There's some intervention, but the business changes faster and more quickly than dermatology changes. And so I sort of like the fun and the challenge of that keeping me on my and I am in a small town. I'm the only dermatologist for a county of 50,000 people. Plus, I have a lot of other surrounding counties I serve as well. So I really feel like I'm part of the community and serve the community. And I really practice sort of like family dermatology. So I see multiple mm -hmm. generations and I get the joy of putting families together and seeing my patients grow up and grow old, both the growing old is sad, but I get to enjoy all of that. Well, I want to ask you, Beth, is there any mistake that you made when you first went into private practice that you think everyone should be aware of or that maybe if you had hindsight that you would choose not to have done? Probably my biggest mistake early on was trusting everyone. I was embezzled from my first practice manager and I gave her a lot more freedom and trusted a little bit too much. But I quickly learned the lessons from that and got back on my feet after that quickly. And that's not an unusual story. Neil, do you have any mistakes that you had in, in private practice that you would want our listeners to know if they were to go into it? Well, I'll tell you, the mistakes that sometimes are made early can be haunting for the rest of the duration of their times. I, I mean, I think, and I would go back to the origins of practice, the, the first thing I would tell anybody is to start slowly and build based on demand rather than think you're going to offer supply to a demand that doesn't exist. And that goes along with lasers, 
with anything that's expendable or can expire or that's not durable for the office. Take, for example, a hair laser. I, I My biggest mistake was getting talked into buying a larger laser than I thought I would ever use because of you know a possible demand of hair removal by men who wanted their backs treated. And I, I listened to horrible advice and got upsold into a laser that was truly expensive. Never used it probably more than once or twice a year, it became the biggest coat rack in the office. But the lease payments were <laughs> ridiculous. And for a solo guy at the time, I just kept kicking myself saying, how did I let this happen? That and I was one of the early adopters of EMR as a solo dermatologist back in 03. And these were all, again, like huge systems rather than things that are dermatology friendly nowadays. And again, the lease payments, you know, I, I thought I was doing the right thing by getting into electronic because of the wave. And all I did was spend tons of money on you know customizing and updating and the system never worked for me, and my volume never supported it. And I think those are the two crucial mistakes I made in the early setup of the practice that I wish I could do over again. If I had to give advice, Terry, and again, you know, Beth was kind enough to invite me to West Virginia to speak at the Derm Society, and I got to meet some of the derms who really foster that uh, care of the patients in the environment of need, where patients come a long way to see their dermatologist or the one dermatologist for 50,000 people or what have you. In an urban setting, it's almost the opposite, where you're almost a commodity to patients or referral base that can easily be replaced. And it, it's kind of a, a sad thing to, to watch sometimes, but if I had to give advice to younger dermatologists who want to be in the big city, I would make them question maybe you should think about where you want to live rather than where you want to work and figure out where's the best work environment is kind of the hockey analogy where you skate to where the puck is going and not to where it's already been. Thanks, Neil. It's a, a tough time we're going through right now with the COVID-19 crisis. And I wonder if either of you, Beth or, or Neil, are feeling like private practice is actually a little more nimble in dealing with the crisis than some of the larger groups, academic centers. Uh, that, that's that's been my experience. Beth, what do you think? I have been able to make decisions about who I want to see and how I want to practice over the past few weeks. And it's reminded me of why I like being a solo practitioner. I've, I've been able to stay open much longer than the larger groups or those that are owned by an academic system or another larger health system. So Many of my patients are reaping the benefits of me being able to make decisions that make sense to me, not ordered upon me by someone else. Very good point. Neil, what do you think about that? No, I think Beth is right on. I worry about the mobility of a small practice is probably balanced by its vulnerability. If you think about making overhead, going into reserves, putting good employees on furlough, and kind of riding out this storm until things can get back to steady state again of, of volume and flow. Telemedicine, as we know it, is not paying the bills. It's a way to keep patients from getting out of trouble or flaring up you know, and, and keeping in touch, but it's not going to pay the bills for many of us. The flip side, though, is if you think about a system and where middle management protects itself and has very little respect for doctors, I mean, they, they call us providers and whatever else they want to refer to us as and they don't value our work. The doctors are the first ones 
to end up getting laid off rather than their employees who they try to protect. And I think there's a there's a bit of a conspiracy within those kind of systems of those who've been entrenched who are making those decisions based on spreadsheets and not based on mm-hmm. you know mobility. And, you know, Terry, I'll ask the same of you if I could. I mean, you and your dad started a practice. I mean, your dad started the practice. You've been there many years. You know, you and your dad have been a great model of teamwork within family. I mean, how would you guys handle something similar, right? Because you're in still a bigger city in Florida, but yet your practice model is as such where you guys have to protect everything. Well, we're doing everything we can to protect our patients first, obviously, and and then also trying to balance keeping our office working. And teledermatology seems to be a method that we can do this. Also, a lot of my my staff is able to work from home and we've transitioned to that. So we're finding out that we're able to do things in a different way and still keep the electricity running. You know what I mean? I don't think that it's going to be a wonderful experience, but I do think that we're all going to survive this. <laughs> you know what I mean? I think we can survive. I think if you just closed up, I think it would be a mistake because there's so many of our patients who really rely on us. And, and if you have a chance to to reach out to your patients by teledermatology, you'll realize how much they actually appreciate you and your care. I wanted to get onto the ugly, and we certainly have I've touched on that during this horrible COVID-19 crisis. And uh, I did want to ask you guys one last thing before we go, and that is what piece of advice would you give a new dermatologist just coming out of practice who wanted to go into solo private practice? Let's start with Beth. The biggest piece of advice I would give is that you need to make sure you know how to manage money and that you don't have a lot of debt before you start into practice. I think that if somebody isn't good at managing their own money, then they shouldn't open a private practice. (laughs) (laughs) And I know that sounds too simple, but it's really, really true. It really requires starting out, I feel like, on a good step financially and moving, like Neil said, small, not buying a ton of equipment right away, figure out where there's one little niche you can fill and do that instead of buying a ton of equipment because he mentioned the lease payments, but there's also a yearly service contract and all those things add up. And look for ways that you can serve your community. And like he said, look to see if there really is a need. When I started, I was told by many people, you can't open a practice there. There's not enough need for it to survive. And I said, but there's 50,000 people here who don't have a dermatologist. So as he said, instead of following where everyone else goes, look and see where there's an opening and a need and go there. That's great advice. Neil, do you have some advice? No, that's very solid advice. I was a big believer in telling new residents and coming out or such. I said, go learn from somebody else for a little bit. You know, that your first job doesn't have to be your last job. You don't have to go open up right away out of uh, out of residency, especially like Beth said, you know, paying off some debts, you know, kind of getting your feet wet of learning how to be on your own outside the residency bubble. But I think it's just as important to learn what not to do as it is to learn what to do. You'll learn that gauze doesn't come free like it does in residency, (laughs) right? You learn about managing employees as an associate and how things are done. And you learn, again, what not to do from people that you may work with. And it may be temporary or maybe a year or so, but I always tell residents, go learn something, 
from someone who's in practice already or a system and you'll learn what you like about it and don't like about it and that'll be much more educational than what you learn in training because residency program training is not the same as real world practice for the vast majority of us unless you go into academics and I, I think it's a good lesson when you're starting the practice you know go slow everything isn't shiny and new when it's expensive and you know the other thing to remember is that everyone has a hand in your pocket when you're starting and that can be very daunting um as well as managing employees in this era where harassment claims are on the rise and you know everything is is very difficult sometimes from a human resources uh standpoint in terms of managing employees so i think a lot of this has to be taken into account before saying i'm just going to open up my own shop well neil thank you so much and i I love that you touched on the idea of mentorship without even saying mentorship mentorship is so valuable and finding a good mentor in dermatology can make all the difference and i guess you guys have mentored all of us today on this dialogue so i want to thank you for being with dialogues in dermatology and uh, we wish you all success in your private practice, in your solo practice, in all your practice types, and we thank you very much. We hope you've enjoyed this edition of Dialogues in Dermatology. This is Lauren Council, your Editor-in-Chief. For more podcasts, including bonus issues, check us out online at the website of the American Academy of Dermatology or through the Dialogues in Dermatology app. You can now also sync your subscription to your favorite podcast app. New podcasts are released each week in addition to our monthly JAD podcast. We hope you enjoyed these new options for listening to dialogues and the increased content for your listening pleasure. Thank you.